Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. In 1973, a group of parapsychological researchers made an exciting discovery in Ontario, Canada. However, in the world of parapsychology, the fascinating findings failed to make waves at the time. They faded into obscurity until those interested in parapsychology unearthed the research again years later. It was called the Philip Experiment. Here's Morgan with this episode's topic. Thanks, Mike. I'm really excited about today's topic. A group of eight members of the Toronto Society for Psychical Research decided that they wanted to address why there were such strange occurrences, such as rappings, voices, and other psychokinetic activity at various mediumship sittings. Were they all a hoax? Was it the participants themselves unknowingly causing the phenomenon? Or was it, indeed, a disembodied consciousness? Perhaps it was a combination of all of the above. Along with this list of questions, they also intended to film these studies in the daylight. No spooky settings, no dark shadows. What was more, the researchers decided that they would not have anyone who claimed to have mediumship powers at the sittings, nor would they invoke a spirit that they thought to be authentic. Instead, they would create one. A fictional man named Philip. With ten original members, they created Philip's story. He was an aristocratic Englishman living in the time of Oliver Cromwell, the mid-1600s. He cheated on his wife, and when his wife found out about his mistress, she accused her of being a witch. Afraid to lose everything, Philip decided to back up his wife's claims, and his mistress was subsequently burned at the stake. Overcome with guilt, Philip began pacing the battlements and eventually committed suicide by throwing himself from the high walls. The ten members worked hard at visualizing Philip as an actual entity, They agreed on his particulars, like personality, appearance, traits, and more. They also decided to attempt to cause him to manifest in visible form. Only then, they hypothesized, could he be summoned. The group members committed to meet in weekly sessions for a year, and at every sitting, they would have a drawing of Philip in the middle of the table. They would meditate with the intention of communication, and then share what they experienced during the meditation. After a year, although fully convinced that Philip could have existed, they didn't see much result with their experiment. It wasn't until one of the group members reread many of the reports of active seances when they realized that they had missed one crucial factor, joy. The accounts of the successful seances had included reports of people laughing, talking, having fun, 
and lots of jokes and happy moments. There was a clear sense of connection and bonding that was going on at these reported seances, and none of that had been happening at their own sittings. Inspired, the Canadian group decided to make changes and start having some fun. Within three or four sessions, something incredible began to happen. The group felt a vibration in the tabletop, becoming more and more audible. The table then began to slide randomly around the room, and everyone could see that no living person was either pushing or wrapping it. From that point on, Philip seemed to be in full swing at all the sessions. He was knocking out answers to questions in time with songs, and even in a way that sounded like laughter when someone told a joke. The group then decided to see if Philip knew his own story, which they had created entirely. It seemed he did. Rapping to answers to questions consistent with the tale that the member Sue had made up. Unfortunately, Philip also gave historically inaccurate answers, which they could almost always be traced to incorrect knowledge on the part of the group of storytellers. Although the group was fully aware that they'd created Philip, they began to treat him as a group member, greeting him when they came into the room. The energy would seem to reply to the greetings with raps that seemed to come from under the table in front of the speaking group member. Other phenomenon were quick to start, including lights flickering on and off and extreme movement of chairs and tables. The table would rock to music and even chase people or levitate. In an attempt to show the Philip experiment was replicable, another group comprised entirely of different members decided to create a character for themselves. They named her Lilith, with a background that made her a French-Canadian spy who had died after being shot in the line of duty. Within five weeks of the sittings and the gatherings, they began to see the same results, table wrappings, movement of objects, and more. It also seemed to answer questions based on its fictional personality. As a result of this second experiment, they fully believed that any group of people could create what they did under the same conditions. What does this mean for paranormal phenomena? The implications are massive. I encountered this case long after I began my program, Teaching the Living, which has been successfully taught in social work and psychology programs in Canada. It's a highly specialized program intended to deal with hauntings from a brand new perspective. The client is not the victim, but an intricate part of a solution tailored specifically to their experience. Entity Seeker Research and Teaching's co-founder, Stephanie Wirtz, and I began to notice an intriguing pattern with clients worldwide. Whether the phenomenon they were experiencing was negative or joyful seemed to be directly related to their way of being in the world. Now, what does that mean? We all have a way of conducting ourselves as we go through our day. We've developed baggage, filters, and stories through which we see the world. Some of these are positive, and some sabotage us in unrecognized ways until we take a deep dive into our own reasons for doing what we do. Unfortunately, not everyone is aware of this. Or they are, to put it as simply as possible, too ego-identified with their own story to let it go. I often use the analogy of envisioning our emotions like a radio dial. The negative stuff on one end, like anger, upset, frustration, and maybe even grief. Then there's the opposing side and all the good feelings. Joy, fun, playfulness, contentment, happiness, and passion. Now we all have good and bad days, but there are people, and we all know them, who generally resonate somewhere on that continuum consistently. We feel them when we come into the room, and that can be good or bad. Interestingly, when we take a look at the clients who call us, the individuals, or family or business, generally report activities similar to where they are on that continuum. They seem to receive the equivalent of what they are offering. 
To investigate this further, I began to examine cultures worldwide, precisely locations designated by National Geographic, such as Blue Zones, and have traveled to some personally. These are the unique places that are considered the happiest places in the world. They have the longest living people, the most joyful people, and they live their best lives as a priority. Now, keep in mind, money is often not a factor. These locations include Ikaria, Greece, Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California, and more. They place a heavy value on joy, family, interconnectedness, and remaining at one with the nature around them. They have what journalist Dan Butner called the Power Nine, which are factors that seem to lead to people's overall happiness. What struck me about places like Okinawa, Japan, was that their view and perception of the paranormal vary dramatically from the West. They don't have a horror-driven view of spirituality, and they balked at the idea of an American military base creating a local, scary, haunted house. They couldn't understand the reasoning behind it, and barely anyone showed up to experience it. In turn, the cases in these locations do not seem to suffer the same violence as cases where paranormal has been built to be frightening and where the people are undertreated in daily pain and stress. Make no mistake, if you have an unhealed wound, you are bleeding. How it shows up for you may significantly vary. Some people bury it under anger, some bury it in substance abuse or self-abuse, and sometimes it seems to manifest as either attracting or creating an intelligence. Broken people attract broken, and on the flip side, joyful people attract more joy. Take a look at your circle, the people closest to you in your life. What you are creating depends on how willing you are to seek joy. Be careful how committed you are to that journey before you say, of course I am. When you pour love on something, it's like a glass with dirt in it. All that sediment will rise to the surface. Now, if we look at the Philip experiment, something that has to be acknowledged is the factor that flipped this experiment from a flop to a success, actively creating joy. All of the members concluded that not only was this a fascinating thing to take part in, but they also walked away feeling fulfilled, happy, and bonded to one another after every session. They created their own culture, with happiness as the main goal, and the activity reflected the playful and fun intention. With that noted, it's often the people in little emotional resistance and negativity that seem to experience the encounters of loved ones and the other happy moments with paranormal phenomenon. Many studies have shown that most of these encounters happen when people let their minds wander while attending to mundane tasks and low stress. Did the Canadian researchers create another consciousness or being from their own intention? Indeed, not all paranormal clients set out to create an intelligence that wishes to generate happy or horrible experiences in their lives. Well, of course they don't. But it must be recognized that what we project, we bring towards us, and it is nowhere more apparent than with psychic phenomenon. The implications of whether consciousness is emergent or fundamental brings us back to what parapsychology considers the hard problem. And that becomes a different discussion altogether. No matter what side of the argument that you take, the results are ultimately the same. We seem to draw to us that which best reflects us, sometimes with supernatural implications. Recently, I spoke with a client who, despite being married to a wonderful husband and having a healthy young son, was dealing with a highly aggressive entity that was physically violent towards her but seemed to have a moderate respect for her husband. It had attacked her on multiple occasions, wrecked the house, and made her life a nightmare. Now, what was interesting about this case, and many others like it, 
was that the client in question had unhealed emotional wounds from a physically abusive spouse from whom she had escaped before she'd married her current man. As many cases like this one, the treatment of those bruised and battered holes in their heart begins to change the client's life experience and the nasty, negative, aggressive phenomenon goes with it. The ultimate question is whether or not the client wants to clean that up and remain in victimhood. Not everyone wants to be accountable for their pain. Nevertheless, it's comfortable and, more often, more familiar than the unknown road of happiness. In conclusion, Entity Seekers Teaching the Living has one goal. Joy. Now, that looks different for every client. My happiness might not look like their happiness. Someone from India may have different cultures and even rituals than someone from Europe or other beliefs. Joy bridges all of them. Ultimately, the methodology doesn't matter, but seeing the spark of hope and excitement as the client begins to get a bead on their passion again is irreplaceable. Our job as investigators and researchers is to be the compass, not the solution. A great teacher will point the way, but they will never tell the student what to see. Otherwise, you rob the client of that self-discovery and the change won't last. Only the individual can make that decision. And make no mistake, it is a decision. It's a commitment to the journey. That journey is not always a comfortable one. It does not always consist of the beliefs that we are hanging on to. Sometimes, things go differently than we expect. The progression of psi research is ever-expanding and, unfortunately, hampered by the eruption of many television shows that are not grounded in critical thinking. The expansiveness of the mind, whether emergent or fundamental, is growing in crucial importance as we move, as researchers, into the realm of quantum and the advancement of the parent. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply normal field. In what we plan on being a regular segment in the show, Morgan and I got together for some Q&A. Oddly, we had issues with the audio from the studio, so Morgan had to go home with a microphone to do her side of the Q&A. So the audio will be a little different. Morgan and Corey claim they've since exercised whatever it was that caused the issue and she'll be back in the studio for the second episode's Q&A. What an interesting story that you chose for our first episode. You know, I had to because it is it's so paramount, I think, to the fundamentals of parapsychology. And it brings an entirely new understanding to this phenomenon that I think is not talked about enough in the public. There are a few things within this story that I found really interesting. And the first one, obviously, is that until they stopped trying to be so serious and brought joy into the session, Philip stayed away. Once they started to have a little fun with it, he showed up. What are your thoughts about why that was? Oh, gosh. You know, I think this question has been asked so much about this experiment over the years, but I don't think there's ever been enough emphasis put on 
this one factor. And I think it comes down to a couple of different things. You know, when we look back in history, the role of intentional manifestation and the role that emotion plays within intentional manifestation, I think, is played out again and again. We hear, we always hear, even just through channeled information, that joy is ultimately the key to really getting what we want. So even if we look and subscribe to, to that philosophy, you can kind of see where it relates. But in the world of psychokinesis and uh, PK, the role of emotion is just essential. So when we study PK activity, we don't see it reflected in moments of, you, or usually in moments of being Zen. Usually when we see PK activity start to explode in places, it is attached to either really negative emotion or stuff that's really positive. And I think this is another example of, of exactly that. It's, it's the key role that emotion plays in not only creating what we want, but also just the role it plays within the psychokinesis itself. It made me think a lot of the law of attraction. And a lot of people are very skeptical about the law of attraction and how it works. Do you think that is what is at play here? I think with the law of attraction, I think it's something that's at play all the time. You know, people always say, well, I don't believe in law of attraction. Well, it's kind of like saying I don't believe in gravity. That's nice, but <laughs> gravity is still happening. And the more we get closer to understanding how law of attraction is happening on a physical and a quantum level, they're beginning to realize that, no, this is a factor here. We see it played out on the macrocosm and the microcosm of the universe all the time. And uh, events and people and emotions, everything operates on a frequency. And I think once we tune into those frequencies, then boom, you know, you end up resonating with all of those things that happen to be in alignment with that. So I think it's absolutely a factor, in, in my opinion. Historical inaccuracies. We've talked a little bit about that, and you mentioned a little bit about that in the story. Do you think that was proof that the group was creating the experience for themselves? I don't know. Maybe you can expand on it a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I always found that really interesting, too. And I think it's definitely a factor in helping to prove the fact that this is something that's happening that's not necessarily a disincarnate entity from somewhere else that's coming in and they're having some conversation with it. I think those historical inaccuracies do start to explain a little bit how this consciousness maybe was developed or the amount of information that a consciousness that is manufactured by people that is manufactured by thought form can actually learn, you know, can something like this retain new information? Or is it limited to the information that our conscious minds here in the physical put into it? I think there's a few major questions like rabbit hole level questions here. But when we start to look at things in regards to like psychokinesis and stuff like that, I think we have to look at experiments that have been done since just to see how the brain has just a very strategic role in creating our reality. So I think that's a rabbit hole question that we could probably spend a whole episode on. Right. So a lot of what these folks claim happened in the room during the experiments is pretty incredible. And some people, including myself, have a tough time accepting bending of the laws of physics in these experiments. Like there's knocking coming from places and tables moving around and all that kind of thing. It sounds like 
telekinesis, if they are creating this themselves, is that what it is? Yes, that's such a great question, because I think I think that really starts to get to the heart of how this could possibly be happening. And when we start to look at some of the brand new experiments that have come out in the last, I would say, 15 years, 20 years or so by people like Dr. William Roll and other laboratories and universities all over the world, they're really beginning to look at PK as the in in a in a very scientific way. So they're discovering that the laws of physics as we know it don't really apply to quantum phenomenon, which PK kind of falls into that category. And when we can understand that the mind really isn't generated from the brain, or that's where they're leaning towards in this research, that it's something that is fundamental and in the environment and our brains are a translating device just in the same way our eyes translate light and get an image our eyes don't create the image and they're looking at the brain in that very same fashion where the brain is actually translating consciousness rather than something that is emergent or or generating it you know from the brain outwards so i think when we we start to look at psychokinesis um, you know, they can apply certain factors uh, in regards to the laws of physics to to what's happening. So, for example, the observer effect, we don't actually stop something spinning in probability unless it's observed. So in the same way, it's also subject to the effects of decay. So the further you are from an object, for example, the less that object will respond in regards to maybe being thrown across the room four feet instead of being thrown across the room 10 feet. The example that I really like to use is hot water into a cold bathtub. You know, when you turn on that faucet and you've got a bathtub full of cold water, that hot water right at the source of where that hot water is entering is really, really hot. But as it sort of moves away from the source of the hot water, it starts to cool off. And sort of that decay effect is very similar to PK, where you kind of have to be closer to the object in order for it to go further. So I, I think they're applying the laws of physics in new ways, rather it being something that is just denying the laws of physics altogether. You mentioned the observer effect, and that has definitely been proven that just observing an experiment has an effect on the experiment every single time. Exactly. And what's so neat about this, and they're discovering it specifically with a, a, an experiment called the double slit experiment, where the observer is drastically altering the effects of the experiment in the room to the point where that bias is making it very, very hard to get unbiased results. So it's really fascinating for me to see this type of experiment looked upon with new eyes, because now that we know a little bit more about what might be happening, we can look at this in a way that they probably couldn't at the time that this was designed. I was curious when reading through your story, I didn't see any mention of uh, someone playing a James Randi or Harry Houdini debunking role in the room with them. Were any of them more skeptical than others? Did some of them just say, OK, I'll do this, but I don't think anything's going to happen? Well, the neat thing I think about the Philip experiment was the fact that they really didn't go into it with a group of people who claimed to be mediums. First of all, they there was nobody there that was like, yeah, I can, you know, I've got special psychic powers or anything like that. They were all just av what they would consider average people. So they weren't people who were super involved in occult or paranormal or anything supernatural. There were some people that were involved that were from the Society of Psychical Research. Mm -hmm. But I think what people don't realize is that the Society of Psychical Research was actually developed as debunkers. And when they got together, their primary mission at the time in the, in the 1800s 
was to put a stop to the psychic frauds. And they were really looking to separate the fraudulent psychic stuff that was going on at the time, which was rampant, from the actual parapsychological scientific research that was going on. So I think just in and of itself, the SPR has a has a pretty good repertoire and following for being objective that way. But there was a fair amount of medical professionals involved too. And no one who claimed to be a medium, for example, were there, but there was also uh, Dr. Joel Witten, who was a psychiatrist. So there was a lot of people involved in regards to this that were professionals and scientists and things like that as well. That's really cool that they would even be willing to attempt something like this. I think that's what people don't realize is that ultimately when we get into the subject matter, and for me, this is what makes it so cool, is the fact that when we talk to doctors and, and physicists and scientists, there are so many neurobiologists, for instance, that are involved in this research and people don't realize that, you know, they think it's all a bunch of laymen. And I think that's part and parcel with the fact that we've got media and television shows and stuff like that that show sort of the layman going out and, and trying to investigate ghosts, when in reality, that's just not true. Has anyone tried to recreate this experiment in the years since Philip and the other group who created Lilith? Something maybe a more modern example? I think the research, it hasn't necessarily been replicated as far as I know, but I think the research has just turned from table sittings like this to asking bigger questions. And it's being addressed more along the lines of, of neuroscience and PK research rather than it being looked at on a more simple level like this. So we get people like I was mentioning before, Dr. William Roll, universities like Princeton, they've got a lab to study this kind of thing called PEAR. I think we're delving into this phenomenon in a brand new way. Uh, and since this point, you know, there even there's a uh, neurologist, there's a fellow in Toronto by the name of Dr. Morris Friedman, who has been looking at the relationship, for example, between psychic and psyability and uh, dementia and things like that. And so I think the questions have just gotten bigger and the research has changed, but I think it's still asking the same questions. You mentioned haunting social work and your methodology teaching the living and one of your clients' experiences. Without breaching anyone's privacy, can you briefly tell us about any other contemporary haunting cases that you've been involved in that had elements like the Philip experiment? You know, they almost all do. Um, no matter what case you're involved in, there's always, always, always this element of people's emotions generating a level of activity or putting them in the receiving place of a certain type of activity. So for example, when we've got a client that is in a, a negative state of being or negative state of mind, and that can be anywhere from grief all the way up to frustration, all the way up to upset. Wherever they're sitting on that emotional scale, you know, you'll end up getting these people who are in direct reception to whatever activity is sitting within that frequency. So the way I explain it is, is like a radio dial. If you're tuned in to frustration and upset on one end, and that's your predominant state of being, not just like you've had a bad day, but that's, a, that's your predominant state of being. People end up getting back that level of emotional energy, whether it be through other people, whether it be through experiences. And often when it comes to paranormal activity, it's the same thing. Just in the same way that if you're, for example, way at the other end and you're bipping along and you're having a pretty good time in life and you're up there and you're having fun and generally doing pretty well and you're engaged in your passions and things like that, they tend to get the same thing where they're getting a reflection back. So they get all the really fun, cool experiences 
things like encountering a loved one that's passed away that they wanted to talk to you or, or something like that, stuff that you want to have happened. All the cases always have this element. And no matter what you do, you can't really unsee it. Once you're, <laughs> once you dealt with one case, it's, it's sort of the same thing over and over and over again. Where does the Philip experiment leave us? Is it proof that there's something else, another dimension, or does it accidentally disprove the afterlife, but show us that we're more capable of having an effect on the world about us on a more quantum level? God, that's a good question. <laughs> Such a good question. I don't think it disproves anything, but what I think it does prove very strongly is the fact that we really do influence our reality. Across the board, no questions asked, we influence our reality. And we have the ability and the power through our focus, through how we think, through the story we tell ourselves, through the narrative we tell ourselves, to create the world that we're about to walk through within our day, within our year, within our month, whatever it is. We are designing in the now moment what we're about to experience. And most, I think, don't even realize that they're doing it because we're so often as a society out of touch with the narrative that we're telling ourselves. We're so used to seeing something on the news and responding to that thing and having a, an emotional reaction about that thing. And then that will dominate our focus and our thoughts going forward where we have to be able to realize that, hold on a minute, we get to decide what it is we are telling ourselves and how we are framing that world around us. And how we do that is going to ultimately determine how we experience it. You know, there's that age old question of, are we living in a friendly universe? And I think how we answer that question is so important. And this is such a great example of it. Is there a place where people can go learn more about the Philip experiment or books that people can read anything that you would recommend? Well, the cool thing about the Philip experiment is that most of it was filmed. And so a lot of those films are now available for free on places like YouTube. When you start to look up the Philip experiment, there's a lot of footage that will, will come up so you can delve right back into it. The other link that I would highly recommend to people, anybody interested in this type of phenomenon or, or research at all, is the Psy Encyclopedia. And that's free online as well. All the content is free and it's an invaluable resource for things like this. Cool. So we'll provide links to some of those things in the show notes for this show. That's perfect. I, I really encourage the people listening to take a deep dive into some of this and start to really look at maybe how you're experiencing this phenomenon. If you're out there, either an investigator or you're a person who's experienced this stuff in life and are, are wondering what the heck's going on, this is such a great foundation to start with. Awesome. You can learn more about the Philip experiment in the show notes for this episode at supernaturalcircumstances.com. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience. We're going to tell you about a process called Paragraph of Appreciation. The purpose of this exercise, like in the Philip experiment, is to find a higher place of non-resistant thought, like joy or fun or happiness. In this exercise, you're going to pick a subject that you have no emotional resistance around. Maybe it's your cat or your home or your bed or your baby 
Something that, when you think about it, it doesn't get you all caught up in the should-haves or yeah-buts. Take a piece of paper and write a paragraph on the reasons you appreciate them so much. Start each sentence with, I appreciate them because, not, I wish they did, or I would like them more if. As you do this, you're going to start feeling a shift in your being and your mood. And as this shifts gradually, you'll begin to change what you're tuning into in the rest of your life. When we focus on positive aspects and appreciation, the universe brings us more things to appreciate. It's like we're sending out a message saying, yes, please, more of these things that make me feel like this, please. Write as long as you'd like. There's no minimum and no limit. This will allow you to tune into something much greater and broader than our physical experience and connect on a deeper level with not only yourself, but the parts of non-physical, the parts of the universe that help us shape our experiences every day. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. And remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at entityseeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at darkpatine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now.